chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse uh, 12 this evening. And as you sort of flip there, I kind of want you to just imagine with me for a minute the situation uh, that the apostles are in. So if you were here last week, uh, you'll know that um, the first part of this book, we kind of talked about the author, we talked about Luke, who he is, the guy who's writing this book, but also uh, spoke of the ascension. So the first thing that happens in Acts is kind of a refrain, or a refrain, refrain, a refrain. Um, okay, wow, very nice of Joshua. Yeah, good job, Joshua. Yeah, give him a round of applause. Um, chivalry isn't dead. Anyway, uh, we talked about how uh, the, the ascension was kind of a, a, re, a recap of what had already happened in Luke. And he's explaining, he's kind of walking through these events. And where we left off was these two dudes sitting there in white robes. They're not angels, by the way. I, I wanted to say that yesterday, didn't want, or last week. Didn't want to waste time, but we're going to waste time now. Uh, angels do not look like what you think they look like. So they don't look like men in robes. They look like, like spherical things with a bunch of eyeballs. Like that's why they're always scared of them. So whenever you hear white robes, don't think like angels. These weren't angels. These were just random dudes floating in white robes, telling them, hey, you just, I know you just saw a, a, a man float into heaven, but like he's like not here anymore, so stop. Is this about angels? <laughs> huh? Yes. Essentially. From heaven. That's, that's all I have to say. Angels are different. We could talk. See, this is why I didn't want to say it. It's super interesting to me to talk about angels because angel, like biblical depictions of angels are crazy. They are kind of like we always, I always had pastors make fun of people for being scared of angels. And now I know why. Because they didn't look like what we think they look like. They just look, yeah, anyway. At, talk to me after church. I should not have said that. I knew this was going to happen. Anyway, um, they, Jesus floats into heaven, right? Floats into heaven. These two dudes say, what are you looking at? That's a normal thing to happen, obviously. A dude floating into heaven. Now just go do what he told you to do. So that's where we leave off. Now, now uh, for three years, they've been walking with Jesus. Their faith is finally sort of put to the test whenever he's arrested, and they're forced to sort of uh, decide whether or not they're actually on his side. And we even see Peter, who's going to be an important part of this text today, and especially next, the next few weeks at Pentecost. But we see Peter, his faith falters. Why does Peter's faith falter? What's he do whenever Jesus is accused and arrested? He what? I heard it. Denies him. How many times? Three times. So if Peter, his faith specifically falters in that moment. Then he comes back from the dead and is with them for, for over a month, which I feel like if someone came back from the dead, there isn't really a time period where that becomes normal. But I feel like at like day, four, like day 40, it's like, okay, he's back. Like you're kind of starting to like get used to it a little bit. I don't know. I've never experienced that. But it feels like enough time that there's sort of a normalcy of, okay, Jesus is back. So they're getting used to being with him again. And finally, someone asked the question, they're all kind of waiting to ask, are you staying? Last week, we learned that the answer to that was no. He says no. Not only does he say no, but he immediately floats into heaven, which, again, like, just, it's crazy. Think about just, I'm trying to get in your heads here to, like, experience what they're experiencing. Like, the craziness of what they were feeling. How they would feel the impact of this. I want us to do this often during the series. Like I said, this is a historical narrative. So this is Luke telling the story of the early church. These were real events happening to real people. This isn't like a fairy tale. These are human beings. Try to think about how you would respond if a dude floated into heaven in front of you. Yeah? Uh, Luke, or sorry, Acts 1, 12 through 26. But try to think of how you would respond in that moment. That impacts how we sort of see these events, that we see these people as actual people. They were fickle, doubting people just like ourselves. 
They weren't like deity. They weren't floating angels. Not angels, I just explained that. They weren't floating white men in robes with perfect lives. So imagine being left on the ground and being told by these two guys to stop looking at Jesus, to get to whatever work Jesus told you to do. I don't know if this, I don't think traumatic is the right word, but at the very least it's jarring. You're like trying to just understand and reconcile what you just saw. Like this is a, a very, this is a very dark example, but I remember uh, like my mom's told me that like whenever she was watching like 9-11 happen on TV, when she saw like the second plane hit, she said that she literally just sat and stared at the TV thinking like that was a replay, right? Like not computing what just happened. That's kind of how I feel stuff like whenever something surreal happens, you kind of need a minute to be like, what just happened? They don't have that minute. They're just told to go. It's a jarring moment. So they had that question that we kind of talked about from last week, this, what do we do now? Like, what's our next step? Have you ever been in kind of in a situation like that where you're, for instance, like I was just talking about with my mom, like, what do you do next? Like, she's, ta- she's told me the story several times that, like, her first instinct was like, should I go get Ryan and Jason from school? Like, go grab them and, like, what, what do I do? Like, what's the, what, what, what's, our, what's our next course of action? I have two examples of, on top of what I just said. One bad, one good. Um, the bad one, we'll start with that one. I have in my life lost jobs before, which is not fun. Hopefully no one has to go through losing a job. It is the worst experience. It's like every single, like, uh, insecurity you have just, like, comes to the surface, like, at one time. It's crazy. But whenever it happens, there's this weird, like, feeling of, like, well, like, do I just go home now? Like, I'm, I guess, like, I'm done with work. Okay, yeah, no, you're right. I'm, I have to leave now. Like, it's a weird moment of, like, surre- like, it's surreal. You don't know what to do. You're not supposed to go back home like normal. It's not normal. Good example, in high school, I threw a no-hitter. If you don't know what a no-hitter is, as a, for a pitcher, it's whenever you go out, you pitch a whole game without giving up a hit. So really awesome thing. Now, it was like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and it was amazing. I did it. Uh, I, I remember, like, I celebrated with my teammates, and my dad being a total dork. He was, like, videotaping me, and I was like, please leave. Um, but, like after, like, after that happened, though, like, whenever we were done, I was driving home, and I had the same thought. I was like, well, now what? Like, that was awesome, but, like, what do I do now? Am I supposed to, like, go post on it on Facebook or, like, what? Like, what's the next step? And ironically, both of the situations left me in the same sort of place. It left me with this, like, feeling of emptiness. Like, it left me with, whenever I sort of, like I said, when I lost a job, it was like these insecurities coming out, wondering, well, what happens next? But then even whenever I had that awesome moment, I immediately wanted to do it again. Like, I was like, I want to go back there, experience that again, and now I feel, like, empty, like I'm missing something. I can imagine the apostles are in a very similar position. Imagine seeing Jesus float into heaven and then just being like, well, I guess we should go get, like, lunch now. Is that what happens next? Like, is that the next step? Like, we're kind of hungry. Like, I mean, it doesn't, that's not how people operate. It's a ridiculous situation to be in. But it's in this moment that the church was being molded. This is a weird, this is sort of the, a unique text in Acts because the first one we went over is sort of the, like, precursor. Like, it's just a recap of Luke to an extent. And the next several, like, weeks, months that we'll spend in it are kind of just the narrative of what happened after the Holy Spirit came. You get this one little bit of text where they're just like, well, like, I hope the Holy Spirit comes. Like, I don't know what we're supposed to do until then. It's a nine-day period where they're just kind of left wondering what to do. But it was this, this, this moment that gave the, the, this, this brand new religion, the staying power that it was going to have because these, the men and women that are in this text or in this story, they didn't walk away. They didn't go their separate ways. They didn't say, okay, well, we'll meet back up when the Holy Spirit comes. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do, which was they went to this upper room together, 
which was like kind of their church building, I guess. And they waited on the Holy Spirit. Like that's, they, they not only waited on the Holy Spirit, but they expectantly prayed for the things that were to come, for the things that Jesus said were coming. Expectant prayer, that's kind of our focus tonight. It's one of the things we're going to kind of come back to a lot. It's a very tricky subject because on one hand, it's a real spiritual discipline to pray, knowing and expecting God to work through your prayers. So what would, have, what would it have said of the disciples or the apostles' faith? They went to the upper room and prayed together. They didn't actually believe that the Holy Spirit was coming. First of all, it's a major indictment on their faith because if you were around Jesus, like if you saw Jesus, it was clear that he was God. Like, like we even see this in this text immediately. Like I, I, you, the example I use often is Peter. Like the change in Peter's behavior pre-resurrection and post-resurrection shows like it was apparent to them that Jesus was God. So the faith would have, it would have been an indictment on their faith if they had just walked away. Or if they would have sat there prayed like, well, I, I don't really believe this, but like I hope that it happens. It is an actual faith if they would have just prayed that like, a, like they were checking off a box. So whenever we pray, for, for example, for healing, we should be expectant of God to heal. And I know there are stories of that happening. I've, uh, Matt Chandler is my favorite pastor. I talk about him a lot. He had brain cancer, and it went away. Like, he got healed of it. Like, like he said that like 99% of the people that he was in treatment with, they all died, and he's like the only one left. Like, God healed him. So it, like we should pray expecting God to work, but at the same time, we have to expectantly pray on what the Holy Spirit would have us pray on, would have us ask for, specifically God's will, which we're going to see a lot. That's exactly what we're going to see the apostles and all the people in this church praying for is what the Holy Spirit would have for them. They went into the upper room. They didn't just pray for anything. They prayed about what Jesus had promised them. They prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. This text is sort of the, the, calm of the, or the calm before the storm that is Acts. Acts is a whirlwind of a ride, like a ton of crazy stuff happening rat, like at rapid speed. This is sort of the last moment of normalcy, last moment of quiet. But it shows what comes before. Like I said last week, I talked about how the Christian life is supposed to be a life of excitement, of adventure. Sending people on missions, sending people to plant churches, awesome stuff. But what we see here is what happens before. Prayer is what what. Uh, facilitates that. Expectant prayer and what the Lord's going to have or what the Lord's going to do. So we are called to that same life of expectant prayer and faith. So let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's, or a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Different Judas, by the way. Um, Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the Moses of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of, of persons was in all about 120. So to give you reference for 120, that's around what we run on a Sunday morning, like at Riverstone. Like in like the sanctuary. That's like a... It's not, like, not total because we have a billion kids. But, like, generally, like, when it comes to, like, just adults and students, like, that's usually the rough number or around that number whenever it's, like, filled. Verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to, be, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, the, in this ministry. This, is the, this, this part gets kind of crazy. It's going to be really, this is an interesting text if you like gore in the Bible. 
Verse 18, it says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. So that's, yeah, interesting, weird, weird Bible verse of the day. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama. I didn't actually practice that word in my bed. That is, field of blood. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there, let no, or let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Just, Justice, and Matthias, Matthias actually, sorry, verse 24, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful again just to gather together, just to be here as a group, Lord, studying your scriptures, singing praises to you. We just pray that you bless our time together, that we would make it uh, 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 an edifying time together. Pray that we'd be undistracted by outside things. We focus solely on what your word tells us this evening, Lord. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. All right, so looking at this text, it's sort of an interesting, it's like a, a little bit of a bridge text. And what's happening here, the, the kind of long story short, is Judas was a disciple, and then that makes him an apostle after Jesus because he had witnessed Jesus' ministry, he'd worked alongside him. But obviously Jesus, or Judas had betrayed Jesus for some money, and he used that money, bought some land, and then wind up dying. A very terrible death. Now there's, if you want to ask me, there's some other details of this that, are, that are relevant that I don't want to get into now because I've had enough gore for one night. Um, but his, his death is kind of confusing, so if you have any questions about it, come and talk to me after uh, service. But long story short, like I said, Judas winds up dying, or he let, he, even before he died, he was obviously cast out of, the, of this apostleship, and now they have to replace him. They have to find somebody else to, to put in his place. Now, it shouldn't be overstated at this moment, the, the faith that is being uh, displayed by the apostles during this time. We talked about this a little bit last week. They, they asked Jesus if he's going to establish his kingdom now whenever he is there. He says no. And like we talked about last week, this was a life-changing question because it destined most of them, if not all of them, to death. They all wound up being martyrs. They all wound up being killed for their faith. And yet in this moment, we sort of see, even as this really terrible thing is happening with Judas, we don't see them like complaining. Or we don't see them even even in understanding their own future deaths, I mean, not, maybe not in the moment, but understanding the peril of what's in front of them, there is no like lament over the life that they wish they had chosen or about missing out on the joys of, like, I don't know, domestic life, of just enjoy, like, having a job, enjoying the, the normal joys of life. There is none of that. Like, they're, all, they're still like, bought in after all of this, even in the midst of this whole Judas situation. There was no, this, is, this would have totally been my mentality, but there's no, like, let's relax for a week and come back. Like, that's always how I am. Like, whenever, whenever I got a new job, uh, my, my thought was, I want to start, like, like, maybe I can start on, like, a Friday so I can like, have a whole week off or something. Like, I, that, that was kind of my thought. I would have been asking, it's been a crazy few weeks, we should take a break, and then we'll, we'll come back and start over. That wasn't their mentality. They were immediately sort of expectant of God to move, and they were obedient to what Christ had told them. This is a really good example of a text that shows that we are able to be obedient 
to Christ, despite our sinfulness. Because I think something that can be taught in, in understanding the complete sinfulness of, ma- of mankind, that we're like completely in, uh, like, with, we are unable to earn our salvation. Like, we all understand that. But that can sort of turn into, because of that, we are unable to obey Jesus, which is wrong. Like, we are able to. Like, empowered by the Holy Spirit, whenever our eyes are on Jesus, we can be obedient to what Jesus has for our lives. So while we might, while we might rebel, we are having, we're, we're sort of destined or should be destined for a life of obedience, not rebellion. Those, those moments of rebellion should be outliers. Like we should catch ourselves rebelling and then turn the other direction. So whenever Jesus ascended, it says that they returned to Jerusalem from a mount called Olivet. It says that it was about a Sabbath day journey away, which means essentially like you could only travel 45 minutes on the Sabbath day. Like that was as far as they could go without classifying it as work. That's kind of what, that was kind of weird in our context. But essentially it was a 45 minute walk, right? And they sort of take this walk immediately after Jesus floats into heaven. It's just immediate obedience to what he had told them to do. Jesus goes up, and after this sort of 45-minute journey, they wind up back in this upper room where they were staying, which this had to be a huge upper room if it was like 120 people. That's, that's what I was thinking. But um, they, they go into this upper room, and they kind of just sit there, and I'm assuming like, the scene is sort of just like, well, okay, we're here. This we're, 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 where Jesus told us to go. They're just all like, well, Jesus was our leader, so like, I don't know what to do now. Like we're kind of just absent of any sort of person uh, in leadership. We're going to get to, to whenever Peter sort of jumps into that, into, that, um, into that role. But even just the fact that they immediately went to this upper room immediately after Jesus had went up is sort of a different level of obedience that they had shown Jesus throughout his life. They were always rebellious, like Peter specifically. They would always half obey Jesus. They would always, they might even outright rebel against Jesus, like Peter when he chopped the dude's ear off. Like that was outright rebellion towards Jesus. Or even whenever he asked them, hey, can you stay up and pray with me? And they fell asleep like two seconds later. Like that, that was again an example of not even being able, being able to obey Jesus of the simple command to not fall asleep. Like I think that like at lock-ins and stuff, whenever I want to fall asleep and I stay awake, I'm like, okay, disciples, come on. Like if I can stay awake at a lock-in, you can stay awake when Jesus asks you to stay awake. So like it was even with little stuff like that, they sort of rebelled against Christ. They were a rambunctious group of people, not unlike the church today. But here they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went straight to the upper room. I've already kind of mentioned this, but anyone want to guess why they're obedient now? Because when the dude that floats away into heaven tells you to do something, you do it, right? Whenever they got, when he makes it clear that he is God, when he resurrects, this is one of my favorite subjects. The resurrection changes everything. Like stuff would stuff would change if like I died right now and raised from the dead. Like you would view me a little differently. You would think differently of me. They didn't just believe in like the okay, yeah, I get it, Jesus. We believe since they were like, okay, it's time to go now. Like they 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 saw Jesus fulfill his his promise by literally raising from the dead and he's like well if he can do that like surely he can give us the holy spirit whatever this holy spirit thing is so they went and they waited they expectantly believed him to do it so not to to jump to application too quick here but i think that this is a sort of uniquely christian problem so how many of you guys how many of you guys know what romans 8 28 is or know what it says anyone have that memorized do you have it memorized what's it say Yes, it says when he, whenever when Paul's writing, he says that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. All things work together for the good, or for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we would all agree with that, right? 
Like as Christians, we all agree, okay, yes, God works everything for the good of those who love him. That's another translation. But how many of us would actually like believe that? Like not just say, like, okay, yes, I know that that's right. Like I affirm that, but actually believe it. Like how many of us would doubt that? Like this is a safe place, okay? I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but like just like think about that. Like I'll, I mean, that's me. Like I'm someone that would doubt that. Someone that would read that and be like, I know that that's what it says, but like my brain, my heart aren't there right now. <laughs> like it doesn't feel like that's true. There's a huge difference between like intellectually understanding something and believing it. Like actually having faith that it's true. So if like if, 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 because a lot of you guys are going into college soon, like if you don't get into the school you want to go to, that, that's a big thing sometimes. Like, if, like C of O, for example. If you want to go to C of O, the biggest reason I wanted to go to C of O was because it was free. Like if I, if I hadn't, now I had some other, like I like play baseball so I get scholarships and stuff, but like if I didn't have like the financial ability to go to school somewhere and like I didn't get in to C of O and I was like, well, okay, now what? Like where do I go now? <laughs> like what do I do now? Like I would have doubted this a little bit. If, if, if you guys like have a, a friendship or a relationship sort of get busted or if whenever like your parents get divorced, whatever the situation might be, like do you actually believe that God's working it for, the good, for your good? Like not just like read that verse to make me feel better, but actually have faith that it's true. That's what made the difference for the apostles here. They expectantly believed it. Not just like say they believed it. They actually had faith and believed that it was true. That's a mark of expectant belief as well is that they, they uh, it says that they were all in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. They believed and they prayed. Uh, does anyone ever feel like scared to pray for something? I feel scared to pray for something because I know I might not get it. <laughs> like if I pray for it, like if I don't say pray for it, it's like, okay, I kind of have it in my back pocket. But like if I ask for it, if I pray for it and I don't get it, then it's like, okay, maybe God doesn't want me to have that. And that's way lamer. It's easier to have it in my back pocket. The apostles were not doing that. Like, they knew the Holy Spirit was coming. Like, they knew that Jesus had told them that the Holy Spirit was coming, so they were praying. They were waiting because they knew it. They were begging God to do it. When it comes to expectancy, when it comes to this sort of true faith, prayer is always intertwined. This wasn't just a a prayer meeting. It says it it was persistent Prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And they were unified. It said that men and women together were praying. So just a little side note. Like young men in this room, like we are called to, to be leaders in everything that we do. This includes prayer as well. Being prayerful leaders. But what I love about this text, what I love about Acts, that it isn't a boys' club. I don't like I always anytime I get the chance to say this, I'm always gonna say it. That I don't want the church, I don't want you young women in here to think that the church is telling them to take a back seat to prayer, a back seat to growing in their faith. It isn't just for pastors, preachers, for, because I know the culture can sometimes say, like, well, let the men do the spiritual stuff. Like, that's garbage. The women were there with them. The men and women together were persistently praying, including Mary, like the mother of Jesus. Like, she was there praying. It was all of them. And ultimately, they were waiting for God to bring this Holy Spirit because he had promised that he was going to do that. They weren't just going through the motions. They expected it to happen because God doesn't fall back on his promises. They'd seen it. But similar to us, whenever we are in a season of prayer, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but whenever you go through a season of praying for specific things, life, pain, turmoil, those things do not stop. They don't respect your prayer time. Even your phone doesn't respect your prayer time. 
Like, stop giving me notifications for like 20 minutes. Like, that's not even how it works. Like, life continues to go on. They, in this moment, had this business to take care of that was not super pleasant. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, it talks, or Peter sort of pipes up and he starts to speak about, about replacing Judas. It's almost like that, that elephant in the room, right? A really big elephant in the room. Like, imagine that question. Like, I can't even imagine, like, a similar situation to that. Of, like, we have, are we going to talk about the fact that Jesus, like, betrayed, or that Judas betrayed Jesus and then killed himself and his guts spilling out all over the field? Like, are we going to talk about that? We're just going to ignore that, like, act like that didn't happen? Like, no, no one wanted to talk about it. But they, 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 had, they had business, they had church stuff to figure out. This is what I love about Acts. This is an actual church. This, isn't, this is the fir- literal first church. So one of the first things they had to do, had to do before all this stuff t- took place, they had to address Judas. They had to figure out what the heck to do about Judas. How to, how to, if they were going to replace him, who they were going to replace him with. Now again, this is where thinking about these men and women as actual people is important. We, don't, we can't just see them as sort of like these puzzle pieces in this story. Like they were real people. These are people that had been friends with Judas for three years. Think about, I don't know if how, what you guys... Uh, church experiences, but like whenever relationships go sideways in churches, whenever there's division, whenever people leave churches, it's painful. It's always painful. Not to say that ours is less painful, but like none of our friends paid or were paid to get Jesus killed. Like that didn't happen. It's like imagine just for them the, the pain of this moment of like, okay, I've got to talk about Judas now. It's time to bring this up. They were not only dealing with the imminent coming of the Holy Spirit, but they were trying to replace an apostle who had betrayed them. If I've learned anything just in studying Acts so far, it's that there's, there's a limit to, the, to where like structures and systems can take you. Because like here, whenever we feel like ministry or life is overwhelming, like whenever we think that we have like a structure or a system that's perfectly in place to like fix everything, like we still get overwhelmed by it like I get overwhelmed by it sometimes of like I like there's just I'm, there's got to be a system to like fix everything there's got to be some sort of structure that makes that makes youth ministry that makes church ministry easier like they were maybe thinking the same thing except they had zero church history to go off of and they had severe issues to deal with like big big boy issues to deal with so just remember whenever we're in those sort of if you're in a moment of like weariness over like the church I know that's a unique thing like if you're like in this sort of ministry context like just remember what they were going through in Acts 1 like, just be thankful that you're not replacing the apostle that betrayed Judas. Like, that's, that's something that we can all be grateful for. It says in verse 15, it says that in those days, Mark's sort of new scene in this story. They're in this upper room. They're waiting, and now it's time to sort of get to business. Like, like Peter breaks the silence. And he's like, all right, let's talk about it. <laughs> let's deal with this. We see in this, uh, this, this, this section these sort of two... Uh, or we see this, the end of this text, these sort of two sections, right, that we're going to end this evening talking about. The first, we see this, this moment where Peter steps up and sort of addresses the group, and it's uh, this moment of leadership from Peter, where he sort of cements his role as sort of like the head guy here. And then we see at the very end um, this, this moment of expectant prayer from the very first church, this moment of, okay, we've dealt with it, let's pray about it, let's figure it out. I see in these verses, in 15 through 26 specifically, like the realness of the early church. When I say realness, I mean like the, they weren't some like, like a mega, like group of mega Christians. 
like just super holy people. They experience the same messiness that we do now. Probably, I don't want to say probably, definitely way messier. I really want to look at sort of the, the, uh, the leadership from Peter. Peter's one of my favorite people in Scripture. I love Peter. He, I love his leadership here. Again, think of the pain of this moment. The Holy Spirit's coming, but they're dealing with the pain of losing their friend of a guy that betrayed Jesus. The church, even the early church, was not immune from pain. And I can kind of think of this, regardless of what, what they, how excited they were for the Holy Spirit, they're also dealing with the fact they don't have Jesus anymore. Like, they don't get to be around Jesus. Like, that moment when they asked if he was going to stay, there was this little, like, glimmer of hope of, like, maybe, it's t- like, maybe we'll get to be with him forever now. Like, dealing with that. It made me think of 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. It's one of my favorite texts. 2 Corinthians 4 is kind of like my mothership of like a, a chapter. It's like my, my favorite verses are in 2 Corinthians 4. But Paul, Paul is sort of speaking of suffering, and he says that we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. The persistence, the faithfulness to, to, to accomplish expectant prayer that they are going to have, expecting the Holy Spirit to come, expecting him to work, can be extinguished by pain, sorrow, anguish. I'm sure that many of you have experienced that before. Your drive to pray. You're like ready to go. Like you, have, you know you want, God, you want to see God work in something. You want to see what, he, what direction he wants you to go. And then something happens. You're like, well, never mind. Less inclined to pray. Less inclined to be persistently seeking the Lord. Peter does not let that happen. He doesn't let them get into that mode. This might be the first ever covenant church meeting. And like most covenant church meetings, the subject matter is rarely fun. Like, the, even if it isn't like super, like, isn't it, even if it's not a super like, big bummer, it's also just boring usually, talking about budget stuff. But here it's very, like I've been in covenant church member meetings like, that are just terrible, that are incredibly difficult and not fun. So it was not a fun time for them. But in these seasons, it is, there's all the more reason to be prayerful, to be persistent. You can, you can kind of see it or hear it in Peter's voice here. So he stands up and he says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. He was about 120 people listening to him, wondering, like waiting for him to, to sort of speak up. Peter's voice is one of comfort, one of assurance. He's saying, listen, like I know what's happened here. I know what Judas did. I know, but... It had to happen. Like the scriptures had, it was prophesied in the scriptures that it had to happen. But just as, as Peter, or as, as, as Paul noted in 2 Corinthians 4, Peter's sort of referencing, or not referencing it, but almost like uh, in, a, in a comforting way ex- expressing these principles. They are not, they're afflicted, but they're not crushed. Like the game isn't over yet. Like they have more work to do. Peter kind of gets their eye on the ball. Each of them sitting in the room wondering what's going to happen next, waiting. But now is not the time to stop. This is a moment sort of where strong leadership is super important. That's why I love Peter. Peter gives us hope, gives all leaders hope. Should give every single one of you guys hope that you guys can be a leader at some point in your life. Because Peter was a huge disaster for like his entire life. He's a huge train wreck all the time. Even after this, like he's not done being a total train wreck. Like him and Paul literally beef like all the time. Like, he is a mess, but he was also called by God. So don't miss that. The Lord calls who he calls. So there might be a moment whenever you are called upon to lead. This isn't just in church. Think about how many 
I, this is the best example that I can give but of how many like, young men are thrust into like, almost parent roles because of like, divorce. Like, all of a sudden, like, the oldest brother is kind of thrust into that position. Or even how many young men and women are thrust into this, sort of, this, this role of family evangelist because none of their family is Christian. Trying to get them to come to church because they're home like some mess. Like, we're thrust into these moments. It wasn't just Peter stepping up randomly. Christ had ordained him specifically. You guys know that, right? Like the Christ said that he was going to be the cornerstone of the church. So this isn't like just a random thing. They're probably all like, as like they're sitting in the upper room, they're all like just looking at Peter, like waiting for him to pray. Kind of like whenever there's a prayer circle and no one's praying anymore. And everyone's like, Pastor Michael, when are you going to pray? No one else is praying. It's your turn. Or anytime ever I go and eat food with anybody, whenever we're, before we eat, they're like, oh, you want to pray? It's like, yeah, I guess. Pray every time. You guys can pray too. That was, that was a soapbox, sorry. That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> this wasn't, but this wasn't random. Peter was ordained for this. So think about sort of the jitters of Peter here. Like Jesus is gone. It's, it's his rodeo now. It's their rodeo now. But he stepped up. And the way that he stepped up is even more telling. So look at verses 20, 21 through 26 as we sort of wrap up tonight. It says that, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he knows what to do. He immediately says, okay, we need to replace Judas. And the guy that we're going to replace Judas with is somebody who has been with us, who's been walking with us, who saw John get baptized, who was a witness to a resurrection. This is the guy that's going to step up. And then he gives the, the way that they're supposed to do it. He sort of leads them in this. First of all, in verse 23, they, they, put for, they bring forward two men, which is not unlike how we call elders and deacons. Literally in this church, whenever we call an elder, whenever we call a deacon, we will have the church sort of nominate them. Be like, who do you think should be an elder or a deacon? And the, the church will call them forward. And then we'll go through the whole process of leadership. It isn't just like Pastor Michael deciding. It isn't like just me or Courtney and all the leadership. It's, it's the church that does that. So we see this, one of the most difficult things that the church deals with in sort of restoration and redemption after failures, especially a failure like Judas. That's a major failure. One of the things that we struggle to do as a church is sort of the, the follow-through after those things happen. Like, there's, like when a pastor is like forced to resign or is fired or something, like, what hap- like how do we handle that? Historically, the church has not handled it super well. Like the church doesn't really know what to do in those situations. Peter knows what to do. But there's, some, there's a few reasons why I think that we fail. I, I talk about this a lot, but I think the church gets too top-heavy. Whenever the church is too top-heavy, whenever, whenever we put in an exorbitant, exorb, exorbitant, is that right? I don't know. When we put a, an excessive amount of responsibility on one lead pastor or one person, and that person like fails or like they, have to, they leave or whatever happens, it leaves a church without anybody else that has any idea what's going on or how they're supposed to follow through. The church, is not, the church was not Peter's church. It was the 120. It was their church. Just like this church is not the pastor's church. It's not the leadership's church. Riverstone is Riverstones. We belong to each other. In this text, we see an example of a church sort of in crisis having to handle this terrible situation. Scriptures mandated that somebody else would take Judas' spot. It wasn't just going to be left empty, which led them to, to have to figure out how the heck to, to, to find this person, how to select this person. The biggest difference between us and them is that they didn't have 
hundreds, literally thousands of years of like church history to go off of. So like one of the reasons why we nominate elders and deacons because the, the way that we do is because, I mean, this is what they did, right? They didn't have that. They're just like, let's just start from scratch, maybe figure out what's best. Like that was what they, that, that's whatever, uh, the way that they had to sort of walk through this process. So the leadership of Peter here is crucial because he could have done things the way that he wanted to do it or he could have done things the right way and been like, let's pray. Let's seek God on this. They had each other in that moment. They had prayer. So when, churches get torn up, when churches get torn up, it's not the systems that wind up dooming them. When people like Judas tear up the church, what stands between that dying church and a revived church is persistent, expectant prayer from the members of the church, from the people who are there. And I can tell you this, like from personal experience, because this is the testimony of this church. This is the testimony of this church. Our church was dying not too long ago. I know a lot of you guys like weren't here for that. Like it's like five years. That's not a long time. Like I remember dreading showing up to church. It was a difficult, super difficult place to be because like I don't know if you guys have ever been in that situation where you show up to church and you don't really want to be there. It stinks. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Just like how we felt like during COVID whenever we couldn't come to church and we're all miserable. Like that, we're supposed to be miserable. So whenever you show up to church and you don't want to be there, it's miserable. It's a terrible feeling. But there were people in this building that were not ready to give up on the church yet. Just a few. They were ready to not give up. They weren't ready to give up on the church yet. That's what we did. And we did exactly what the people here did, or what the people in this early church in Acts did. Started to pray. We knew that the church was not going to be revived with a better system. It was going to be revived if we asked the Lord to revive it. If we asked him to fix it what we did. We prayed. Let me tell you, being on, because I was on the pastoral search committee, and it was so stressful, unbelievably stressful. But at the same time, we had, we had all these, like, super long meetings. I hate long meetings. They make me so mad. I don't even know. Like, that's probably a bad response to the long meetings, but I just get super angry as they go, and I don't get angry about a lot of stuff. So it's super, probably not a good thing. I should probably check myself. But, like, a lot of long meetings, but at the same time, we, we never stopped praying. We were, all, we were asking God to bring the right family here, and they, obviously he did. Like, the church now is fundamentally different than it was five years ago. Like, it's not even the same, not even the same church. That's what the church did in this text. Peter laid out the guidelines for how they were going to pick this, this new apostle, which was to ask the church to bring people before them, not Peter, not John, not James, all of them, to bring someone before them, that they would pray over and ask God what to do. Ask God who to select. It says in verse 24, that's what they did. It says, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you've chosen. This is a great example, great exhibition of biblical expectant prayer. Because like I said earlier, expectant prayer is tricky. You can't just, you can't pray expect, like I think what we sort of like to do is, well, if I pray expectantly over the one thing that I really want, then God's going to answer that prayer. Like that's not what I'm talking about. Like, you have to pray about what, we, want, we need to pray about what God wants. They prayed. They asked, who, you know us, you know the hearts of all of us. Who do you want to be here? Their heart was simple. Show us. Show us who you want. Show us where to go. And their persistency was the key. Persist, what is persistence? Anyone, anyone think, what do you guys think persistence is? Anyone know? Have any guesses? Stubbornness, kind of, in a good way, yeah. 
Yes, that's closer. Mm -hmm. What are you going to say? <clears throat> you don't remember? So it is, it's repeating the process, it's stubbornness, you're right. But the big, the big thing that makes persistence different than like, uh, like perseverance or just consistency is that it's doing so in the face of difficulty, in the face of trial, continuing to pray when it's hard. So like it's a good thing to say, like, okay, I'm going to pray every single day. Like at 8 a.m., I'm going to get up, I have a prayer list, I'm going to pray. Like that's fantastic. But at the same time, it's whenever life sort of gets hard, like, are you going to keep doing that? And even if you are going to keep doing that, are you going to do so actually praying, expecting God to work in your life, or is it just a, like a, just a routine, just a habit? They could have been discouraged that Christ had left them, that Judas had killed himself. They, they could have stopped praying, but they didn't. They continued on. They continued to persist, and God came through. He gave them the answer to who the next apostle was going to be. And better yet, he was about to come through with the Holy Spirit, not many days from then going to shake the sort of foundations of the universe, literally. And what, imagine what would happen if they would have stopped praying. They'd have been like, nah, it's too hard. Like this whole Judah situation is too hard. Wish Jesus would have stayed here. Like imagine if Peter would have went back to his old tricks, been like, I like being a fisherman. I don't want to get crucified upside down. I'll just go do that instead. That's where their sort of expectant prayer goes to this next level. Are you actually expectant if you stop praying when the going gets tough or whenever you don't hear, when you don't find answers in the moment? Is that actually faithful prayer? Whenever every situation isn't perfect, the apostles, they waited nine days for the Holy Spirit. That's not a long time, but whenever Jesus tells you that the Holy Spirit's going to come, this mystical Holy Spirit being, I mean, after like 30 minutes, I'm going to be sort of like doubtful. Like, really? Like, what, what do you mean Holy Spirit? Like, we understand what the Holy Spirit is. They didn't know what the heck he was talking about. It's like this, what? Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? I would have been, like, 45 minutes in. I'd be like, are we done now? <laughs> like, like, it's obviously not coming. They waited nine days. They prayed for nine straight days. Have you prayed for nine straight days? No, I have not prayed for nine straight days. They prayed for nine straight days. You can imagine the doubt sort of creeping in at every second. So what happens to our prayer life, our faith Whenever this sort of waiting pattern hits, when this holding pattern hits, whenever a hard situation comes up in life, as we close, we should be building our lives around this sort of persistence, around this ability to sustain through trial, through waiting specifically. This is a specifically different, difficult topic for me just because I'm really bad at this. More often than not, I, I resemble the, the doubting man in James tossed and turned like a wave at the sea, like, that, that text is always repeating in my mind. So I'm like, that's me. <laughs> that's who I am. Like, I'm all, like, always doubting. I find myself praying sort of without faith or belief because I'm kind of a cynic. Super, I'm pretty cynical, pretty stubborn. Praying without expectation. And it shows a sort of a lack of trust in the Lord. This is a word that the Lord has been sort of hammering home to me in the last like, few weeks. Trust. Showing me the lack of trust that I have in him in certain areas of my life. You want to know what requires trust? Casting lots for who's going to be the apostles and being like, God's going to give us the right person. Because that's literally what they did. Now, that was an Old Testament thing. It was an Old Covenant thing, so they, was, they were rightful to do that. But at the same time, like imagine, like remember what I talked about last week, the magic eight ball? Like imagine being like, all right, magic eight ball, who's going to be the next apostle? And like trusting that the Lord's going to do it right. Like, that's what they were doing. It required trust. 
about expecting the Holy Spirit to come. It required trust in what Christ had told them. Preparing to go out on mission to face the opposition they were going to face required trust. Giving up the life that you thought you wanted for the one that you were called, they were called for required, required trust in the Lord. I read this on Saturday morning. got super frustrated because I don't know if you ever get in this moment where, you're like, where you get convicted about something and it just makes you mad. So I'm like, okay, God, I know, you're, I know you're telling me that, but I didn't want to hear it. I don't want you to tell me that. But I heard that uh, this, on Saturday. God was kind of dealing with me on this from Charles Spurgeon. It says that your love is very, or your Lord is very jealous of your love, O believer. Did he choose you? He cannot bear that you should choose another. Did he buy you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think that you were on or that you are your own or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he would not stop in heaven without you. He would sooner die than you should perish. And he cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and himself. He is very jealous of your trust. He will not permit you to trust in an arm of flesh. He is jealous of your trust. Jealous of my trust. You know what Peter could have done here? Like I said, he could have done what he thought was right. Could have said, I'm going to pick the next apostle. Because like he'd been around these people. I'm assuming that he knew like he was the best of the bunch. Could have been like, you know what, let's go with him. Don't want to risk, the, don't want to risk uh, him, them saying the, picking the wrong guy. It's a scene in Parks and Rec where, they're doing this, where they do this town slogan. And, and the main character is like trying to trust the town. They won't mess it up. And they like make a grammatical error. And she's like freaking out. Like, don't, and she's like, don't tell. They'll fix it themselves. They'll fix it. Like, that, like, Peter could have done that here. He could have been like, I don't, like, I'm Peter. Cornerstone of the church, maybe I should pick this guy. He didn't do that, though. He prayed. He did what, he, he sought the Lord on it. What about the church? Could have went without the Holy Spirit. They could have done what Jesus told them not to do. They could have not waited. They could have went out on their own. Could have had their own plans, set their own agenda. But they didn't, because they needed the Lord for it. The Lord chose us to believe that. To expect that, to expect what he has for us. Cannot bear that you should choose another. The apostles, they're about to embark on this crazy mission that requires them to have a death grip on Christ at all times to make it through. It's the same mission that we are called to. We can't do it unless we are able to do what they did, to trust in the Lord, to believe upon his word, to believe upon his promises. So listen, do you believe Spurgeon whenever he says that God is jealous of your love, that he's not just this sort of ambivalent person in the sky that are like, I, I hope, hope Bowie's doing all right, hope his knee's okay. Like, that's not who he is. He's jealous for Bowie's love, jealous for Parker's love, jealous for Callie's love, jealous for all of our love. And he's not someone that's just going to, like, let that stuff pass by. He's like, no. Like, I don't, I, I love the line where it said, it's, it's, it's similar to a line in What a Beautiful Name, that song. When he says that he loved you with such love that he would not stop in heaven without you, that he would sooner die than you should perish. That's the jealousy that Christ had, that the Lord has for you. He cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart, between your heart's love and himself. Do we believe that? Like, do we believe that we serve a God that has that view of us? So like I said last week, this is gonna be a time, I want Wednesday nights to be a time of sort of repentance, of being refreshed. Have Jason come up, if you'd all stand with me. Know that I'm not the only one here that struggles with, this, with, with praying with faith and belief, sort of expectantly. The only one that doesn't, I know I'm not the only one that doesn't feel like sometimes like you're praying to the ceiling or, or struggles with uh, 
with, with, with trusting the Lord, the persistence comes from trust. Like our ability to, to endure comes from trust, to keep praying anyway, to keep seeking the Lord anyway, to keep coming to Him anyway. There's not a better place to be than in that sort of state of mind, to be dependent on Christ, to recognize that. Because the second that you, reckon, that, you, that you go in the other direction, you'll sort of start to see, maybe I don't need him. Maybe I can go a different direction, it'll work. You have to believe that he's better than anything else. That he is working, actually working all things for, the good, for our good. So like I said, these nights are supposed to be about repentance, about, about be, having your, your soul be refreshed in the middle of, this, of a tough week. I'm assuming you guys are at school. Life isn't always easy. So listen, tonight, if you are struggling to trust God, if you are struggling to believe his promises are true, actually believe that they're true, because I know that's the case. Like, listen, I could go, I could go around the room, ask you, do you believe Romans 8, 28? You'd be like, yes, I do. Like, I get it. But I also know that, in, like, I know that that's not true with some of you. I know that internally that's not an actuality. So if you're struggling to believe those things, pray. So what, this is what Wednesday nights are for. Bring it to the Lord. You're not a Christian. You think you are a Christian, but you aren't. That peace, that assurance that the apostles experienced in this text is available for you. There's a peace that goes beyond understanding for both the non-Christian that they would surrender to Christ and for the Christian who would surrender to what Christ has for them. So listen, tonight, if you're if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling to trust God, if you're not even just in with anything related to this sermon, if you're just having difficulties, whatever it might be, this is a time to pray. Come pray down here, pray at your seat, grab someone, grab a friend and pray for them. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Be asking the Holy Spirit to lead. Let's sing together.